Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This morning we are recording the trail less traveled inside a 1972 Chevy one-ton, 3500 chassis mount camper. And there's a beautiful aquamarine theme that is delicately spread throughout the camper, starting with the very front Chevy symbol throughout the cab. This aquamarine seats and dashboard. I'm drinking really good coffee with my friend Doc. He goes by the name Doc because for 35 years he was a dentist in Southern California and Bayfield, Colorado. He started running rivers in 1974, working for Sobek in Ethiopia on the Omo and the Grand Canyon. Doc and I just worked three back-to-back Middle Fork Salmon expeditions. And I say back-to-back because we get about a day off, well, a partial day, not even that day. Not quite a day, two mornings. <laughs> on 24 days working straight. Now that is something that I didn't think I could do at the age I am right now, but I found out I could. And what age is that, can we ask, Doc? 75, 10th of May, born 19 and 45. End of the war, babies. Doc, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure part of your childhood? I grew up in Southern California, Sherman Oaks, which was a nice, medium community of people. Yeah, we're all average middle class. There was even some middle lower class people because back then you could afford things and you can't afford them now. Great little time to grow in the world. Post-World War II, 1950. Not a better time to be around. So yeah, I was a happy little guy. <laughs> when I was real young, well, I mean, four, four years old, we started doing some camping trips. My dad loved to be outdoors, and uh, we do family trips. Go up to the Sierra Nevada, drive through uh, east side of the Sierras, and get up in the mountains and camp on lakes. And You didn't make reservations back then, you just found a place to camp, because there were always places to camp. And uh, that was my first experience of outdoors, and. I guess my eyes were real wide open and looking around and just loved it, loved it. And my two and a half year older sister nicknamed me Joe Campout because I liked to camp so much. And she preferred motels mostly, but it was summertime. I mean, we didn't have a lot of time in those days. My dad worked mostly and we went to school. so. You took your big trip in the summer, and sometimes in Easter, because we get a week off at Easter. And that summer of 49, I remember we took this long trip to Utah, to a place called Panguitch Lake. And it took oh, 24 hours of driving, it seemed like, because the roads were small and cars didn't go very fast. And it was hot in the daytime, so we often drove a lot of it at night, which I 
think of how hard that must have been for my parents, you know, just driving all night. But crossing that kind of country, you saw a lot of different aspects. When you'd leave Los Angeles, you're out in the desert and crossing a big, wide desert and finding you top kind of a hill and you looked down this valley and then there was just this tiny nucleus of lights in this giant valley and that was Las Vegas, Nevada. You drove right down the center of that town where they had all the gambling halls and bright lights, even with signals that only took about 10 minutes to drive through the town. And I always remember that when I have to drive through Las Vegas, Nevada, in this day, coming from the takeout on the Grand Canyon, driving back up to Canada, how big that place is now compared to how it looked. I still have the picture. I still have the picture of looking down and saying, wow, what is this? And uh, My folks would take a break of driving and go into a casino for a while, an hour or so, and, and uh, gamble a little bit, probably get some chow. and. Back then, maybe even have a cocktail to finish their drive that took us to Panguitch, Utah. But we were kids sleeping in the back. It usually would arrive there in the morning. They were real tired and we weren't. So we'd be running around outside in this rustic cabin that had no heat and electricity, but no amenities at all. Wood stove, we would cook on a wood stove. Uh, so that was kind of the beginning of outdoors. and. Over the years, we would do it consistently. Somewhere in the summer, somewhere in at Easter. When I was eight years old, I think that was 1954, we had gotten a brand new 16-foot boat that was wooden back then. And we, we drove to Lake Mead. And I'd never been to Lake Mead. The route followed the route that we had taken to Utah, went through Las Vegas again, arrived at Lake Mead, and here was this giant lake. Biggest lake I'd ever seen, because all I'd seen is mountain lakes. Biggest lake I'd ever seen, parked right in the middle of the desert. And it, it, it just, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, I, here's all this water right in the middle of this desert, and the beauty of it was astounding. So that became a ritual. Easter, go up there and uh, sometimes camp out, and usually we didn't. We stayed in Boulder City, which looked very much like the government town it did back when they built Hoover Dam. And spring trip, and then when I got a little older, by the time I was 12, I think, my dad used to take my brother John and myself on a fall trip there, long weekend. You could only take a day off school. That was kind of the rule. If we ever had a, a special time, we'd take one day off school and add to that weekend. Then we'd camp out. Then we'd camp out and go out on the lake. And, and we always, back then, did it with a bunch of his buddies. A lot of them dentists, all and some World War II vets. This one particular time, they decided to camp in the picnic area zone. You know, there was no staying staying there at night. You know, you had to leave. There was, there was a campground a mile away or so, but you know, ex-World War II vets didn't care too much about rules. And we were camped there the first night. 
went out fishing the next day and came back and probably left a lot of gear there I can't remember I know that first night found an old tire and had ourselves a campfire by burning a tire and they you know smart men were on the upwind side of that tire so you really couldn't tell the river anyway the ranger uh, ranger shows up and he was a eh, probably a man at least their age he said you know this is a picnic area you you can't be camping here at night he said the campgrounds over there and one of my father's friends said well what if we do this what if we make a sandwich and have a sandwich in our hand and sleep with one eye open will we be picnicking now oh the old guy kind of chuckled and he kind of knew he was dealing with and he said well that sounds like a reasonable uh, approach he kept no you need to move to the campground <laughs> but i just the audacity of those men in a humorous fashion too there was no confrontation it was it was just uh happy men making fun so we moved to the campground and then that night my dad's friend don hodge i just remember he helped me get in dental school he was the nicest man saw an old an old man, I looked like he was in his 80s, late 70s, 80s, sleeping in his car, you know, a 39 Plymouth or something. And he went over to the fellow and he said, hey, old timer, you had anything to eat? And the man shook his head, no, I hadn't. So Don went back and whatever we had that night, he made him a plate of, of chow and gave it to the man. And uh, I was touched by that. I just, there's things in your memory that you, that come out that you don't ever forget. And that was one of those scenes. And uh, I almost makes you cry now because Don's long, long gone. And we slept there that night and my dad used to listen to a radio at night. And we woke up the next morning, it was Sunday, we were getting ready to leave. And he said, the Russians have launched a satellite. And this was the first satellite ever launched. And we were in a space race with the Russians, and here they had launched Sputnik. And it was just, well, it was kind of mind-bending. I mean, I, as a kid, I just knew that was pretty important. So it was a memorable time. It was October 1957, and from then on, you know, we started that whole space race. and So that was that uh, an important time. Well, I went on through that time and kept going back to Lake Mead and uh, other places and started growing up. Before I knew it, I was in high school. That is the voice of Doc. And Doc and I worked together on the Middle Fork Salmon. We just got off the river after working for 24 days straight. We're sitting inside of his 1972 Chevy one-ton chassis mount camper. Doc was a dentist for 35 years. He worked in Ethiopia for Sobek in 1974 on the Omo and has also been on the Grand Canyon working since 1974. When we come back, we're going to learn about that transition into discovering whitewater. But Doc, it's now time for a song. So I told you about this when we were on the river, hopefully at a moment to float down that beautiful wilderness and think about what songs may have reminded you of your early childhood. My first recollection of, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, we heard songs when we were real young that our parents played, but in 1957, that was the age of the beginning of rock and roll. And probably what comes to my mind was Elvis Presley singing Don't Be Cruel. 
and back then we had 45s that had two, you know, a song on each side, and one side was Don't Be Cruel, and the other side was You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog. And uh, that reminds me of that era. That was, I think, actually came out in 56, but that was the beginning of paying attention to uh, rock and roll and Lucky Logger Dance Hour. We're currently recording the trail less traveled inside of a 1972 Chevy one-ton chassis mount camper. I'm here with my friend and fellow guide, Doc. In 1974, he began his career as a river guide. So Doc, can you tell us about your journey in the world of whitewater? I got real interested in the Colorado River, Lake Mead and the river below Hoover Dam in the 50s. I started thinking, looking at maps, I had this Southern Pacific, Union Pacific map of the area and above Lake Mead was Terra Incognita, the Grand Canyon. And uh started wondering what that looked like, what it was like. I'd been to the rim in the early 50s and looked down and saw this river and my dad said the river is what carved this place. Uh, anyway, it was, it was starting to become a question in my mind. And it was the fall of 57. We were really addicted to going there a lot. It was easy. We either camped out or we had a motel in Boulder City. Got back to school. I was junior high, seventh grade, and uh, was in an afternoon class, English class, I'm guessing, or history, one of the two. And the teacher announced, well, we have an assembly for this hour, so we're going to go over to the auditorium and see this movie, which I always loved assemblies because you didn't have to sit in class and didn't like sitting in class and so we marched down there in double file as they always did or single I can't remember and uh, sat in there and here's these two birds they're not old but to us they were old everybody's older than you when you're in junior high or at least most people are and it was Bill Beer and John Daggett and they showed up to show this film of swimming the Grand Canyon. And I'd never even heard of that before. A lot of people at the time might have, but anyway, they put on this eight millimeter film of them swimming the Grand Canyon. And they did swim the Grand Canyon. They did not walk around any rapids. They swam the whole thing and survived, obviously. The way they did it was they got these two old they were frogmen demolition packs that they used in the war. Whenever I talk about the war, I'm talking about the Second World War, because that was the war. Uh, anyway, those swim fins and whatever thin wetsuits they had at the time, they were Southern California surfers. And they kind of got talking bravely about, we could swim the Grand Canyon, we're surfers. And after a while, you, you got to stand up to what you've just said you could do and, and as they said it was a cheap adventure that got a little out of hand anyway both these men swam the grand canyon and i saw that film i saw those rapids and i just said someday i am going to go through the grand canyon i don't intend to swim it 
that I am going to go through the Grand Canyon. So that pretty much set me on a course of getting to the Grand Canyon. And I thought about it over the years. Went on to high school, played football, uh, on to USC, pre-dental. Got into USC right after they won a national championship and was thinking about going out for football. Walked out to the practice field that spring and saw the size of these young men and the strength and said, well, it's out of my league. There's no way I can compete, so I didn't. So I do that. I get into dental school and graduate from the university in 1969 and a little bit in debt, not bad. My dad paid for most of it, but I don't have much money and I got to go to work. I got married. My dad was a dentist, so I went into his office. And the thought of Grand Canyon was kind of in the periphery, but no money. Just had to kind of work a lot and do short trips to Lake Mead and other places like that. Well, in 1974, my wife and I divorced and I stood back at the big picture and thought about what I really wanted to do. I wanted to get out of Southern California. It was too busy, too much a city, a lot of smog back then too. It's a much better area to live in now when they controlled all that pollution. But I had the idea of the Grand Canyon came up again. I thought, well, I have not done anything for a long time that I really wanted to do other than short vacations. I started kindergarten at four and I graduated dental school at 24 and now it's, what year is that? It's 1974, so I'm 28 years old and how about something that I really wanna do? And that's when it came up. I wanna see the Grand Canyon, how do I do that? Well, I have no skills. I have no whitewater skills. I actually floated a section of the green below Flaming Gorge and saw what it looked like. So I had brochures from companies and representatives that I could talk to and I called her up and was thinking about doing a trip in the gates of Lador and then, and what really came out of my mouth was, I want to learn how to be a guide, be a, be a uh, whitewater boatman, who should I call? And she brought up a couple names and I said, they need to run the Grand Canyon because that's where I want to go and, and one was, Vladimir Kovalik and the other was George went of Oars and she recommended George very nice guy Vlado was a nice guy too but he had hard edges and not near as nice openly as George was so I gave George a call and uh, had a nice meeting with him and he invited me to come up to Angel's Camp and run the Stanislaw River and he, at that night he gave me a training trip in the Grand Canyon so I had my portal into that Went up on the Stanislaw and met all these boatmen. And it just, I knew, oh, they're characters and pirates is what it seemed like. And I went, yo, ho, ho, it's a pirate's life for me. <laughs> and there I was, went up there for a month. And then 1st of June was my first training trip in the Grand Canyon. By then, George had given me two training trips. Back then, you needed three trips, not six. So I got out there and started training, and I fell in with the boys there. I worked as hard as anybody could possibly work, and they were impressed by my working attitude. After running one trip, they called up George, and they said, give him the third trip, let's get him trained. We want him on the crew next year. So that's what I did. I ran three Grand Canyon trips in a row, back to back. We had no time off, much like we do here in Salmon. You get off 
and the next day you're driving a flag and buying the food and that night you're at Lee's Ferry so zero time you had enough time to wash clothes I had very little clothes so it didn't matter too much anyway so got that done yeah of course my first trip was incredible I had heard about the big white water and the beauty of the canyon but there's nothing like doing the first trip in the Grand Canyon uh, not knowing what's around the next bend and sleeping every night under the stars and hearing the roar of rapids and then when you get to just above the gorge there you look at this giant rapid called Hans and you <laughs> Your, your, my stomach was literally in my mouth. I, I'd had a rough run or two in House Rock and somewhere else. And I thought, my God, this is so long and you're trying to re remember what to do. And I just remember running it and getting through it without flipping or, or falling out of the boat. And I have no idea whether it was a great run or not, but at the bottom of it, I had gotten through it. Then on into the gorge in those great big rapids, sock dollars are great fine. And we camped just below Phantom. We did exchanges and we camped just above Horn Creek. And back then the water, the fluctuation was huge. They would drop it out entirely and, and then run you out of your kitchen when they brought the water up. They had no, it was an unpredictable pattern. You thought you knew the pattern and the next thing you knew it washed out the kitchen. Well, we got up the next morning and all the boatmen were real fidgety. They were looking at the river and looking, and we were right above Horn Creek, and the water wasn't coming up, which it usually does. It usually does come up. And they were extremely nervous about running a low-water Horn Creek, and, of course, I had no idea what that meant. I had never seen it. And we got down to Horn Creek, and we had kind of lollygagged in the morning to wait for the water, which it didn't come. And if we finally had to leave, we had a schedule that we had to keep. They ran it on a schedule to produce power. And I don't really remember what day of the week it was. I don't think it was a Sunday. Let's see, one, two, three, it was day six, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So it was a, it was a weekday and the water should have come up. And normally it did, it just didn't right then. It's why they were confused. I mean, all the boatmen were saying, well, how come the water's not here? Predictably, it should have been. We got down to Horn Creek and uh, looked at it. Water hadn't changed. And at that level, I'm guessing now about 4,000 CFS because you, you couldn't split the horns. There was a run there at 5,000 I've done later on trips, and you couldn't because there was a rock stopping it. So we had to go down the right side, which smashed into the rock at the bottom. And tough deal, real tough deal. Terry Bryan, who wasn't leading the trip, but was on it, was a very strong man, and he did a cut, went into a hole. Skip Horner went down the right side and smashed into the rock, breaking the spare oar, and Sam Street at the time said, stay a little more left in that tongue, and I think you'll be okay. And I did just what he said and missed the rock, and I had had my first run in Horn Creek Rapid, which was also the lowest water level I've ever run Horn Creek. So it's quite an experience. And uh, I felt pretty good about it in the end. I, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm getting this, maybe I'm not, but uh, any accomplishment to a difficult stretch of white water you feel good about.
it was a wonderful trip. I did two more uh, and became a trained Grand Canyon boatman. And Terry Bryan wrote this. He had a degree, and it was called RTRB. And I became a rough, tough river boatman, a degree that I liked to put up on the wall right next to my degree or doctor of dental surgery from USC. I felt that proud about it. That is the voice of Doc, Steve Nicholson, who is a fellow guide and friend on the Middle Fork Salmon. We just got off three back-to-back -back expeditions. We've been working 24 days straight. We're sitting inside his 1972 Chevy One Ton. Um, we're drinking delicious coffee. And just outside the door, you may hear the sound of what I believe to you. What year would you say that is? What's that, what's that machine outside? That machine is, is probably from the 50s. It's an old, old forklift that uh, has a roof on it, which you didn't see much. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a probably late 50s model of a forklift. And the neighbor here, very proud of it, I can tell. Very useful, very useful instrument in moving heavy objects. Uh, we need one here, actually, but we probably won't see one here. We have one at Grand Canyon Expeditions that moves everything around. Well, you can hear the sound of that beautiful forklift as it warms up, and uh, we're here in the camper. Doc, it's now time for another song. So. What's the first song that comes to mind when you think of the early days of going down Grand Canyon when the water levels would fluctuate drastically? What just came to my mind right now, and, and I have to honor this man because he was a legend and a giant in my life in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that's a John Prine, he, who just passed away due to COVID. And uh, I, my mind has been really into him and it's standing by peaceful waters I mean, i'm going to try and sing this you know we're standing standing by peaceful waters standing by peaceful waters whoa oh Standing by peaceful waters. We gotta go now. He said that in song. We're here in Salmon, Idaho with Doc, my fellow guide and friend. His real name is Steve Nicholson, and he was a dentist for 35 years. He started guiding in 1974 in Grand Canyon, and then eventually in Ethiopia, and all over the world. We're sitting in Doc's 1972 Chevy one-ton chassis mount camper. It's absolutely beautiful. The color aquamarine starts on the logo of the Chevy in the front and flows through the entire camper onto the stove, which I'm standing next to. It's afternoon now, a little bit warm here in Salmon, but I'm really grateful for the company and the stories. So now we're going to talk to Doc about the early years of running Grand Canyon. Well, it's 1974. I've been trained in the Grand Canyon and went back into work in California, guiding on the Stanislaus, American, and the Tuolumne, which is quite a river, and up in Oregon on the road. Went to Ethiopia in the fall, but that is another story for a different segment. 
So I come back in 1975 and signed up to be the manager for oars in California, which is a lot more work than I actually expected. Maybe that's wrong. It was not fit for me. Anyway, my love was to be in the Grand Canyon, and I realized that. So I start my guiding career, commercial career, in the Grand Canyon in 75, and background on what it was like back then. We had frames made by 2x8, 2x6, 2x10 that you sat on, pinned oars. They weren't old at the time, but Green River boats, which were the boats first built for running the Grand Canyon, kind of taken off of the old tin men's that the frogmen used to assault beaches in World War II. And a lot of our equipment was surplus World War II equipment, the packs and whatnot. And to me, it was all great. Hey, this is what we do. The environment in the canyon was quite a bit different then. Number one, there wasn't a lot of vegetation because the dam was pretty recently gates closed and we had a lot of sand which you don't see down there today uh, as a result of the dam stopping all the sand. Bureau Reclamation was all about power generation. There no consideration was given to river runners down there. They were totally unimportant. I don't know if they even knew they were there. They were there. If they did, they didn't care. And our fluctuations were so radical and unpredictable. They would, on a diurnal basis, they were somewhat predictable. You'd see a high water mark and a low water mark and expect that, and then it would change. And as a result, you would think your kitchen was safe from being washed away. And uh, you found out in the middle of the night it was not safe at all. And we had a kitchen or two washed down the river, never to be seen again, and cooked our meals on bale buckets over a fire. Now this is a Grand Canyon 13-day river trip, but back then the trips were different too. The people that signed up were adventure people. There was not really much following compared to today of the Grand Canyon, so they expected an adventure and by God they got one because everything was different and as experienced as we were as boatmen, Today, you would have to train for as many trips as we had under our belts just to start to be a guide. So all the hikes were new to me, but we created new hikes and did things with ropes and went down into grottos and uh, whatnot, and the people ate it up. And they were all adventurous people. Some were, you know, we did have some older people on the trips, but mostly not like we see today. My average age on a Grand Canyon trip now, because I run dories, are you know 50s 60s 70s you know and a sprinkling of 40s so these this was a whole different generation of people that were down there and we were a young generation of guys and the the uh, uniform down there was cut off levi's some tennis shoes we didn't usually wear shirts we were young men and we're proud of our bodies and get a good tan you know <laughs> <laughs> by 1983 important date in the grand canyon because that's when we actually had a pre-dam flood. That was my ninth season, I guess. Oh, maybe my tenth. I don't have enough time to focus on a lot of stories, but 1983 was a watershed year in so many ways. We never thought we would see a pre-dam flood in the Grand Canyon, and we did. We saw peaked at 92,000 CFS, which was sort of a typical average spring flow. And all those high water marks that we had seen and wondered what the river looked like, it approached them. 
it, it hit them. And you had to pinch yourself to be there. I mean, it was just so magical to actually see something that you never thought you were going to see. High, high water. Most of the rapids were gone. 90% of them were gone, in fact. All the inner gorge rapids, save a few, disappeared. All the Marble Canyon rapids, save one, disappeared. 24 and a half mile was the first rapid we ran into on that flow. And it was big, and we had a taste of what we were going to see down in the gorge. The first real big rapid was Hans. It was very impressive. And we were starting to learn how you can't really get out of the wave train. You would try and row with all your might to break the first lateral, and you would break it, but you would slow down so much that the second lateral would push you right back into the center of the current. And our eyes were big and wide. And of course, Crystal was the rapid everybody talked about. It was on CBS News on the six o'clock news when I returned from a big water trip on the Yampa and I could see, oh, this is Crystal, but it looks far, far different. So we didn't expect too much. No, we had no expectations of what things would be like. And the rapid right above there is Hermit and it was gigantic and nobody had even mentioned the name so we got a real christening uh, of how big that water was there along with Hans and Crystal of course was exciting there were motor rigs tied upside down the bottom of Crystal and one all the way down to Elves Chasm which is quite a ways from Crystal and it was the culmination of my guiding career in the ninth year of my career because I saw things that I never expected to see and have never seen again, as it turned out. Tremendous experience. And uh, then the, as, as those years rolled by, equipment got better, fluctuations were reduced, the Park Service and the Brio Reclamation finally listened a little bit to what the guides were saying down in the Grand Canyon, what was going on. An organization was formed in the late 80s called Grand Canyon River Guides Association, and we developed a voice that was actually listened to. It ushered in a greater community of trying to do things positive for the Grand Canyon, and I'm very proud to say that Grand Canyon River Guides Association actually pushed and got the Grand Canyon Protection Act implemented into law, which has had a positive, has a positive flow to the whole uh, area. And this is my 46th season as guiding, and I haven't gotten to go down the Grand Canyon, principally because of the COVID-19 epidemic. My spring trips were canceled. So hopefully I'll get to go in September, which I'm scheduled, but things have just changed quite a bit and for good and bad you know I love the freedom of the old days not as much scrutiny was placed upon river guides Grand Canyon still the Grand Canyon and it's over loved now with so many people down there but it's still a pristine place the guides have done a great job park service has helped but primarily most every innovation on the river was spearheaded by the guides because we could see what needed to be done down there. I have met and become friends with so many people from that river community that embellishes my life. And I'm <laughs> late on in my career here and 
I just keep coming back and well I've made a decision it's not about a record it's about how long I can be a professional guide and not be held up by anyone because I'm not worthy of really being a guide and we'll just see how long this goes because I know that once you quit you never get to come back you're you're just going to be away from it and I've determined that I'm not going to quit guiding until I know I need to quit and that will be before somebody tells me that I need to quit my body will tell me my mind will tell me and uh, who knows I'm planning on guiding next year at 76 and if something gets in the way physically well then I won't be there but I'm just going to keep doing it until I know I shouldn't do it anymore it's a big part of my life that is the voice of Doc. Doc is a fellow guide with me on the Middle Fork Salmon, and he has been guiding around the world since 1974. On the next show that features Doc, we're going to travel with him to Ethiopia to run the Omo in 1974. Doc, you know that I see you as a mentor. I personally have a goal to continue being able to guide paddle boats until I'm 70. So for those listening and for fellow guides... Can you share with us some advice on how you are able to do what you and I just did, which was basically work 24 days straight? Our guests in our boat always ask us, you know, how do you do it? You're going out again. Aren't you tired? Like, wow, it's amazing. How do you personally handle doing back-to-back river expeditions in terms of answering that question for a guest and also a fellow guide such as myself? Well, it's actually fairly simple. I'm assigned what trips I'm supposed to run or they would like me to run and I look at it and see if it's possible or think if it's possible and I know that if I do this for a particular company there will be some loyalty come back my way and of course I don't want to bite off more than I can chew but I haven't found that limit yet so on this particular season on the Middle Fork I didn't expect to be running late in low water. I expected to be running earlier. And and when I was asked to run a third trip, I thought about it. And I said, well, I think I can. And let's just go. <laughs> and we'll see how well I I hold up to the task. And, and thus you push out your boundary a little bit on what you think you can do. And you find out you know you can do it, and it's kind of a, you've got to find out yourself. And and I guess my advice to anybody and anything they're doing is never shortchange yourself on what kind of strength you have. Because it's there if you feel you want to do it and accomplish the mission, you will be able to do that. Doc, can you share with us some advice on traveling through the many labyrinths of the Grand Canyon. Be brave. (laughs) Be brave. The next corner is going to give you something else that uh, if you've never been down there, you'll never see. And gosh, it still scares me. I mean, I'm trepidatious above the gorge. I know the kind of work set out for me, and I know the possibilities of things not going correct. And you just have to buck up and feel that you can do it and and sometimes you have to give yourself a pep talk and that's all good because again it's in any facet of life push your boundaries push them out there don't be a fool 
but push them out there so you can say, well, I can do this. And the next time that occurs, be at the Grand Canyon, be anywhere, whatever you're doing, you know, I can do this. And the positive attitude is, well, yeah, it's half the equation. The other is being prepared physically and mentally to do it. And the, mentally, you get prepared by keeping doing it. And physically, you need to be in shape all the time. Time off the river is fine to take a break and not work yourself as hard, but you have to prepare for each season. Otherwise, that start of that season is pretty hard. And the older you get, the harder it is. So my off season uh, is usually has a lot of physical activity and trying to take care of my body. So that's my best advice. You are on the trail less traveled, being recorded today inside of a 1972 Chevy one-ton chassis mount camper. I'm sitting here with Doc. His real name is Steve Nicholson. He was a dentist for 35 years in Southern California and Bayfield, Colorado. He started guiding internationally in 1974, and I hope that you do join us for the next feature on Doc, where we travel with him to run the Omo River in Ethiopia. Doc, it's now time to end your show with a song. Yes, this song is in keeping with what's been on my mind ever since uh, I learned that John Prine passed away due to COVID-19, and out of my love for him and respect for him, this is a, I'm not even sure if I know the title, it's The Elephant Boy. I'm going to sing this hopefully in tune, the right melody. Well, the movie wasn't really doing so hot, said the new producer to the old big shot. Dying on the edge of the great Midwest, Sabu must tour or forever rest. So, halo, my, here comes the elephant boy, all dressed up in his corduroy. Headed down south towards Illinois From the jungles of the East St. Paul John Prine, I love him. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I'd like to thank you so much for joining me inside of a 1972 Chevy camper parked next to a creek in Salmon, Idaho. I'd like to thank also my guest and mentor, Doc. Doc's real name is Steve Nicholson, and he has been working as a river guide internationally since 1974. Doc guided on the Omo in Ethiopia, as well as the Grand Canyon, and most recently he and I worked for 24 days straight on the beautiful Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. Doc worked as a dentist for 35 years, and at 75, he continues to guide on the Grand Canyon and the Middle Fork, among many other rivers. If you haven't already, it's definitely worth looking at the official website, traillesstraveled.net. The show is also an award-winning podcast that's available on all platforms, including Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere that you gather podcasts. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. For the past 10 years, the show has aired every Sunday evening at 6 on The Trail 1033. 
My adventure tip this week pertains to hot springs. Where I guide on the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho, there are many hot springs. Remember that hot springs are incredibly healing and detoxifying, but they will also dehydrate you. So when you soak in hot springs, make sure to drink lots of water before your soak and also afterwards, especially if you're drinking any alcohol. That's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. <laughs>